0: Hi, I'm George Teknichov, and this is the second in our special series of Easton Target Archery podcasts on the 100-year history of the Easton Company uh, as we lead up to that 100th anniversary. In the first episode, we did talk about considerable detail regarding how Doug Easton got into the archery business in the first place. We also went back in time a little further to the 1800s talked about how the Easton family emigrated to the United States from Scotland. And then in the 1930s, we talked about how Doug and Mary Easton were able to grow their very small, modest business into something bigger, interrupted by World War II, and then starting off in the 1950s with additional new products and new methods. By 1956, Doug Easton had acquired a worldwide reputation for his arrows and it was little wonder that he and his products would acquire attention from around the world because, quite frankly, at that time, that was the only source of really good archery products in terms of uh, arrow shafts that was available anywhere. So Doug found himself uh, getting the attention of a 15th-generation headmaster of a Tokyo school of kudo, Japanese traditional archery. Hidaharo Onuma was a ninth level kudo master, and he became one of the first Japanese businessmen to import eastern arrows to post-war Japan. Born in Tokyo in 1910, making him three years younger than Doug, Master Onuma felt that it was his calling to bring kudo, or traditional Japanese archery, to the world. In turn, Doug felt it was his calling to bring Easton's arrow shafts to Japan, so there was a pretty good alliance going on there with Master Onuma and Doug working together to bring both forms of archery to each other's respective cultures. Doug produced meter-long, specially made arrows for kudo, used throughout Japan and the rest of the world today, while Master Onuma helped popularize Western archery in Japan. And of course, the outcome of that is the fact that Japan has become a, a real powerhouse in archery, not just in Asia, but around the world. Now, this was an iconoclastic move on the part of Onuma because the Easton aluminum shafts replaced traditional bamboo shafts. Those shafts were very expensive, very difficult to obtain, and they limited the growth of kudo. And if you think about it, that's a real parallel to what Doug Easton was trying to solve with super expensive wood handcrafted arrows giving way to less expensive and much more accurate from arrow to arrow aluminum arrows. Well, because aluminum arrows made quality arrows more available and more affordable, most high schools and universities in Japan have kudo as a club activity to this day. In fact, there are more than half a million practitioners of kudo in Japan. And Western archery has had a powerful base in Japanese schools, with the result the Japanese archers have won three Olympic silver medals and a women's team bronze since 1972 in the return of archery to the modern Olympic program. Now, today, Master Onuma's daughter and family run a large archery shop in Tokyo, which is one of the bigger importers of Eastern arrows for both Western and traditional Japanese archery, and they export kudo bows and other equipment around the world. Kudo is still more of a specialty outside of Japan, but that was a, uh, a marriage made in heaven, as it were, when it comes to having made kudo a lot more accessible. In the mid 50s, Easton Aero distribution expanded worldwide, not just in Japan, and by the 1980s, Easton shafts were sold in more than 120 countries around the globe using a network of exclusive distributors in each region. By the late 1950s, things were beginning to change. Doug Easton's business was divided between precision tubing, used for aerospace and other activities, and arrows. Doug's heart, however, was completely, really, wrapped around arrows. He didn't have much interest in doing much more. Things were about to change, though. In 1958, Jim Easton graduated from UCLA with an engineering degree, and he was a freshly minted U.S. Army Reserve recruit. Now, Jim uh, was one of those people who had more ambition than his father. And that, as we mentioned perhaps earlier, did lead to a certain amount of strain between the two. Jim had been at Douglas Aircraft by this point for five years, having broken from his father, and in fact, they really didn't speak much during this period of time. But he was beginning to feel the strain of being a smart, ambitious innovator in a huge company like Douglas Aircraft, largely run by bureaucracy. And in 1960, he returned to Easton. At UCLA, Jim had met Madge Ward, a smart Midwest visitor to California with an adventure streak. They married after graduation. In 1962, Madge gave birth to Jim's first daughter, Lynn. By family accounts, it was a childhood friend of Bob and Jim, an adopted cousin neighbor girl named Jeannie, whom Mary had virtually adopted as a daughter because of her home circumstances. It was Jeannie who broke the ice between father and son because, as I mentioned, they hadn't spoken in nearly six years. Jim and Doug soon settled into a mutually respectful work relationship. Now, Jim actually took a pay cut on returning to his father's company, but he was more than happy with the opportunities that his mind found as he started to think beyond just making arrows. Jim's younger brother, Bob, Doug's youngest son, was also working for Doug, and he was developing new product ideas. Now, Bob was an avid skier, and he'd come up with a superior ski pole, at the time the world's lightest and strongest much to Bob's disappointment, Doug rejected the idea of selling an aluminum ski pole. Bob was possessed of a creative mind, at least the equal of his fathers and brothers. He chafed at the fact that another company brought a similar but inferior product out a year later. But he was convinced by this episode and other issues that Doug would never let him fully exercise his creative impulses to make products that go beyond archery. So Bob decided to leave and take on architectural study at UC Berkeley, and later in London. He went on to become a renowned architect and an Oxford University published author on Native American architecture. He's authored and co-authored works on American and Santa Barbara region architecture and is a member of the American Institute of Architects. Now, In spite of his initial resistance, Doug utterly reversed himself on his views of Bob's choice when he saw Bob's first completed work as an architect, which was a project in Hawaii. In fact, he proclaimed Bob to be the reincarnation of his own highly creative grandfather, which might have been the highest praise Doug could ever muster, and Doug helped finance Bob's next level of studies in London. Fittingly, Bob attributes his inspiration to study Native American architecture, the teachings of Ishii to Saxton Pope and how they changed Doug Easton's life. Now, when Jim Easton returned to the company. It brought the wider perspective and some new ideas that exposure to an experience base like working for a major aeronautics contractor should be expected to create. With his participation in the creation of new aerospace alloys as well as airplane building processes and techniques, Jim was able to help with the development of some important new materials – including revisiting the 7,75 ultra-strength alloy that Doug had worked with back in 1948. The company began one of their first OEM manufacturing ventures with Scott USA to produce custom ski poles made from Easton tubing. As we mentioned, Scott was first to market with a ski pole that was made of aluminum, but it proved to be a poor performer. The Easton poles were lighter and stronger and allowed Scott to revolutionize the ski pole market and take a lion's share of sales. At first, Scott bought and finished the custom Easton tubing themselves, but by 1965, Easton was producing finished poles for Scott. From the beginning, Doug and Jim required an Easton logo to be on any complete item made by Easton that would be sold by a third party, a decision that would have a big impact on the company later. Within a few years, Easton was supplying most of the ski industry with poles, including K2, Reflex, Alsop, Hope, and other companies. The venture into ski poles led to one into golf shafts, and this required an expansion of the factory built on Califa Street by a third, making it a 15,000 square foot factory. This also enabled the installation of Easton's first in-house hard coat anodized line for finishing aluminum goods with a hard, durable coating. In 1963, the 75th NAA Championship returned to UCLA in California. Doug and Jim worked together in the organization for another successful archery event. That would end up being something that Jim Easton would repeat nearly 20 years later. In 1964, Doug, Jim, and Larry Belden developed the Easton X7 arrow shaft. This original 7000 series alloy arrow would be the first to receive the hard coat anodized finish that's today the world standard for aluminum arrows. Among other benefits, the anodized finish prevented those black hands and aluminum dust that the 12-year-old Jim Easton had to scrub out of his skin every day. 1964 brought the third generation of Easton future company leaders to the world with the birth of son Gregory James Easton, known as Greg. In 1965, Doug and Jim contracted with several companies to make private label aero shafts made to customer specifications. Customers could specify things like the dimensions, the colors, and other factors. One of the first customers was the Swedish archery pioneer Bjorn Bengtsson, whose butyrate plastic arrow knocks, Bjorn nocks were among the most popular worldwide. Another archery powerhouse, Bear Archery, was another major customer, selling 24 SRTX arrows as Bear Falcons. Later, all the 24 SRTX shafts were renamed as E24. In 1965, Doug and Jim codified what would become the industry standard interchangeable point and insert thread system, known as RPS for replaceable point system. The RPS was founded on the principle of a single internal shank and thread hole for all points and all arrow inserts, and this had a lot of important benefits for both target archers and bow hunters. See, originally, in the early to mid-20th century, broadheads with cone-shaped hollow ferrules were glued to the front of tapered aluminum, uh, rather wood, shafts. When aluminum shafts were popularized later, cone-shaped inserts were installed in the front of the arrows, kind of making them act like the wood arrows, but there were problems with this. Broadhead manufacturing tolerance sack and techniques for installing these things with hot melt glue often prevented good concentricity and alignment of the broadhead to the arrow shaft. So, developing a tight tolerance point shank and a matching insert made better concentricity and alignment possible for both target points and hunting broadheads. Doug had experimented with screw-in points long before, but Jim created the 832 thread configuration of the RPS system which became the true industry standard to this day. 1964, as we mentioned, had the earliest 7001 X7 arrows, and those were the first hard-coat anodized arrows produced. This started out as a target shaft, but quickly there was demand for it as a hunting arrow, and the first customer for those was the Bear Archery Company, making the metric magnum. Bear magnums put Easton in the forefront of hunting shafts once and for all, bringing really reliable bow hunting arrows to a new level. Well, even the well established process of hard anodizing aluminum had to be redefined and reinvented by Easton to bring the process to accuracy levels that would be good enough. Normal anodizing procedures change dimensions and cause weight inconsistency. Easton perfected precision anodizing to make it work at aero tolerances much harder than you might think. Jim brought a healthy understanding of marketing when he came to Easton as well. In 1966, he began sponsoring what nearly all archers today know as the Vegas Shoot, a massive gathering of archers from across the globe for an indoor competition in a Vegas Strip or Vegas-area casino. This hugely popular event, still super popular today, at the time drew Hollywood stars and considerable public attention to archery, and Jim did his part, working hard to promote the event. Easton has been a Vegas Shoot sponsor every year of the event for well over 50 years. The Apollo moon landing project grabbed the imagination of the American public in the 1960s USA and thousands of businesses were recruited as suppliers for the effort to reach the moon. As a technology leader, Easton was no exception, but again, this was a point of friction between Doug and Jim. As we mentioned before, Doug always pushed back anytime Jim wanted to expand the company product lines. Doug simply wanted to have total focus on making the most precise and strong arrows and other tube products, but Jim, he wanted to take things beyond arrows and tubes. Perhaps nothing illustrates this better than Easton's part in the Apollo program. Jim won a contract with NASA to build a complex solar radiation shroud, a vital part of one of the more important pieces of gear brought to the moon by the Apollo missions, lunar seismometers. Jim and a cryogenics engineer, a friend of his, invented this shroud, presented it to NASA, and got a contract to build enough of them for testing and deployment by the time the Apollo missions would head to the moon. The shroud was extraordinary, kept the equipment package at plus or minus one degree over a 500 degree temperature swing from the airless lunar surface. Knowing the project might bring unwelcome attention from Doug, Jim thought ahead. He recruited somebody working in the straightening department, Dick Tone, a re- renowned archery champion and today well known as a top Olympic coach. Dick was tasked to build the shrouds in an unused back room at Khalifa. I think the th- thought there was maybe Doug wouldn't notice. We'll talk about that in a bit. Now, Dick Tone is another natural engineer, and he used his experience building model airplanes to help him with the intricate work needed to fabricate the extremely complex mylar and Teflon shroud very intricate piece of technology, very touchy, hard to build. Well, as you might expect, Doug Easton learned of the project and, as you might also expect, he was not happy about it. In Doug's view, Jim's backroom project had nothing to do with any of the other items the company made, and Doug didn't see any benefit in making something that did not use the company's fundamental processes, like aluminum drawing. So, he felt he had to put his foot down. But he couldn't really fire Jim, so instead he fired his friend, Dick Tone. As we mentioned, Dick became a renowned Olympic archery coach and founder of his own successful archery business, and he remains a lifelong friend of the family. But at the time, as Dick puts it, he was caught between father and son. Doug didn't see any way for the company to profit for making Jim's project. As I mentioned, Dick and Jim and Doug remained friends, but the episode certainly illustrates the friction between Jim's product expansion ambitions and Doug's hard-nosed attitude. Uh, Dick recalls he built about 14 of the shrouds at Easton's factory before Doug fired him. The remainder of the contract was fulfilled off-site at a facility in Hollywood that Jim paid for out of his own pocket. Perhaps unknown to Doug, though, the firing did set Dick Tone up for immediate deployment to the war in Vietnam. The problem was... Dick was integral to building these parts, so Jim had to work with a local member of Congress to get Dick's deployment deferred long enough to finish the job for NASA, after NASA accidentally blew up a few of the shroud units during vacuum testing. Well, in spite of all this friction between Jim and Doug, they still forged ahead with more new aero and non-aero projects. In 1966, the high-strength 7001 alloy that was used in the successful X7 Arrow was used to make better golf shafts. Easton sold these to Voight and other companies. After Arnold Palmer won the Los Angeles Open with aluminum shafted golf shafts, steel shaft maker leader uh, True Temper swiftly reacted and essentially forced club makers to buy their aluminum shafts in order to access the mainstream steel shaft portfolio. Now, at the time, True Temper was the 500-pound gorilla of the golf shaft market, so this pushed every company, including Easton, out of the aluminum golf shaft business, at least for a while. By 1968, a year before the first Easton-built lunar seismometer shroud was deployed by Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin during Apollo 11, Jim led development of an entirely new product, using the techniques and knowledge base of the company, and more in alignment with what Doug wanted this became yet another family of revolutionary, game-changing products. Baseball bats. It started out with a simple process. You would take a metal bat made from a tube that was hammer-swedged over a mandrel to rough out the shape. Then you would drill out the handle. Now, this was a bit crude. What Easton did was far more sophisticated. They implemented a production method called tube reduction. Larry and Jim developed the means to turn large-diameter aluminum tubes into high-performance baseball bats using massive machinery and dyes to cold-work the metal over a mandrel while maintaining a constant, custom-designed wall thickness. It took 10 years to develop the process. This technique, along with all the other straightening techniques and strengthening techniques that Easton developed for arrows, allowed for strong, dent-resistant aluminum bats that easily outperformed wood bats, making Easton the world leader in metal bats for baseball and softball. By the mid-1970s all the way through today. By this time, it became evident the limitations of the Khalifa Avenue facility would prevent the pace of product development needed, so work was started on a new factory, a bigger one, with anodized and other capabilities built in from design. This was 7800 Haskell Avenue in Van Nuys, or 7800 Haskell. It was selected as the new factory site, and work proceeded swiftly. So by 1969, the move, from Khalifa to Haskell began. For a transition period, some of the processes were performed at Khalifa, some at Haskell. But two disasters were waiting in the wings. Doug Easton began smoking in his teens. With the twelve-hour days and additional lengthy hours at his homework bench, this habit grew, until he was by middle age virtually a chain smoker. In 1968, Doug was diagnosed with serious lung cancer. This began a four year battle that Doug lost on the final day of December of 1972. Before that, there was hardship even then. The 1971 Silmar or San Fernando earthquake, a thrust quake measuring 6.6 on the Richter scale, severely damaged the new Haskell Avenue facility just miles from the epicenter. The new anodized line was severely damaged. Half the facility's roof was lost. A 15-foot-deep molten salt heat-treat tank, deprived of its heat source, turned into a three-ton solid block of salt, needing jackhammers to break down and repair. It took nearly a year to rebuild the damaged facility, and during that time, Khalifa served to keep much of the product line going. With Doug having passed away in 1972, With Bob engaged in his successful architectural career, the reins of the entire company fell squarely upon Jim. True to his father's vision, Jim kept building upon the core Easton processes and techniques that started with the first successful aluminum arrows. Now, at this time, Easton had about 95% of the aero market worldwide, so the resources were there for Jim to put an unprecedented percentage of profits into direct research and development simply to create new products and materials. Jim was always seeking new materials to try to obsolete his own products and advance the state of the art. One good example is carbon fiber. In 1969, Jim made an investment in a San Diego composites manufacturer, and that paid off, with eventually developing the world's first use of carbon fiber and archery bows. It was the Hoyt Archery Company, out of six companies that Jim sent the product to, which successfully used Jim's carbon fiber materials to produce the bow limbs used to win the 1976 Olympic Games in the hands of the American archer, Daryl Pace. This was the first ever practical application of carbon fiber in archery. Pace and every other archer at the Games also used Easton X7 shafts. Jim had a tendency, as Doug did before him, to hire top archery competitors. And as the company offerings were diversified, expert users in those specific products were added to his staff. This continued as a powerful theme through the company's growth and development. So, baseball players joined the company, hockey players joined the company as those types of products were brought on board. Doug Easton did manage to live to see one dream realized the return of archery to the Olympic program. Archery was in the Olympic Games in Paris in 1900, St. Louis in 1904, London in 1908, and then after being interrupted by the First World War one last time, Antwerp in 1920. But the rules were different in each Olympic competition. There was no strong world leadership body for the sport, so archery was dropped from the Olympic calendar. The Fédération Internationale de Terre or FITA, the International Governing Body for Archery, was formed in Europe in the 1930s to codify the rules and bring the sport back on the Olympic program. Doug worked directly with FITA on various efforts to restore the Games to the calendar, but his most active role was really within the United States Governing Body for Archery, the NAA at the time, now today USA Archery where we've already seen his participation in staging several national championship events. When archery finally did return to the Olympic program for the 1972 Games in Munich, Germany, Doug was too ill to make the trip, but he did live to see X7 Arrows take every medal in this first archery event of the Contemporary Games. By the early 1970s, Jim Easton was more involved in archery organization than Doug had ever been. As we mentioned earlier, he was a sponsor of the Desert Inn Classic and the other events that eventually became the Vegas shoot, and he also helped sponsor other events like the Kobo Hall Indoor. Jim also produced the first modern Olympic archery film for the 1972 Olympic uh, Games in Munich, the official technical film, as the IOC calls it, which documents the event. Bob and Jim corroborated on the film for the 1976 Games in Montreal and Jim was involved in every subsequent Olympic archery technical film through 2008. Now, with all these commitments and projects, Jim Easton was clearly his father's son when it came to capacity for work, the ability to multitask, just sheer brain power. Jim, now unimpeded by the division that he used to have with Doug, expanded the portfolio of sporting goods produced by Easton, dividing the company into archery and team sports. Team sports were sports like baseball, softball, field hockey sticks, ice hockey sticks, and the umbrella also covered things like tennis rackets made for Prince, bicycle components, windsurfing masts, drumsticks popularized by top rock and roll drummers, and many other items of that nature, even football protective gear. The Prince Aluminum Racket was a good example of another iconoclastic, game-changing product created by Easton. The Prince Pro was the first racket with a big sweet spot, the impact zone for the best return of the ball. It balanced better. It was lighter and easier to swing, far more weather resistant, and it cost less than laminated wood rackets that dominated the sport. All these themes should be familiar to you by now, considering what happened with archery equipment and some other things. A better racket, a bigger sweet spot, and less expensive made it easier for beginners to get into tennis and contributed to an explosion in the popularity of tennis. By the late 1970s, Haskell Avenue was filled to capacity even after an expansion and acquisition of an annex. Jim began looking elsewhere for space because there was no way to further expand the tightly confined Haskell Avenue plant after the development that took place in California in the 1970s. So Jim set his sights on somewhere else, and it narrowed down to two places. One was Sparks, Nevada, where today Tesla has its Gigafactory for batteries. The other place? Salt Lake City. Now, like his brother Bob, Jim was an avid skier and familiar with Salt Lake City. Utah had great skiing, and also a good workforce, good access to transportation and distribution panels, and most of all, the space needed for further expansion and good, efficient plant layouts built from the ground up. 1979 saw ground broken for a new, highly efficient manufacturing plant, which would be five times bigger than Haskell Avenue, containing North America's biggest, most advanced automatic anodized line. Now, within a few years, most of the aluminum arrow production was moved from California to this sprawling facility. High end target arrows and team equipment fabrication continued to Haskell Avenue. At first, the Salt Lake City facility functioned only to anodize and final straighten semi-finished arrows coming from Haskell Avenue, but later, hunting arrows and then later, aluminum target arrows were made completely in Salt Lake City. After a few years of development by a company engineer who was an avid ice hockey player, again leveraging the sporting knowledge of Easton's employees, Easton introduced the first two-piece aluminum ice hockey stick, which was approved by the NHL in 1980. This was a yet another iconoclastic product, the Easton two-piece stick revolutionizing the game to replace inconsistent wood sticks with far more consistent equipment letting players concentrate on their technique instead of struggling with the big differences from stick to stick. The popularity of the Easton ice hockey stick led to the establishment of a division in Canada for distribution and the fabrication of laminated blades for the sticks near Montreal. At first. Easton provided the sticks on an OEM basis for the companies Christian and Canadien, until Easton sold and distributed its own branded stick in 1986. In 1981, Jim initiated development of the first aluminum-carbon arrow shafts, again working with in-house competitive archery enthusiasts. This was a revolutionary product, the first step in developing a truly revolutionary technology, the first successful carbon arrow which was introduced in 1983 in time to be used in winning the World Championship, which took place in Long Beach, California, as the test event for the 1984 Olympic Games. A second addition to the Salt Lake City factory brought it to a volume 11 times that of the original facility at Haskell Avenue in 1983. This is a 60,000 square foot expansion, which allowed installation of the remaining aluminum arrow processes at Salt Lake, including heat treating and drawing. For the first time, complete Easton aluminum arrows were made outside Los Angeles. High-end target shafts, as I mentioned, were still made at Haskell Avenue, but now they were finished in Salt Lake. Work on a 120,000-square-foot state-of-the-art product distribution center to be situated next to the manufacturing plant was initiated. This was intended to be state-of-the-art, with automatic systems to move inventory around the facility. At the time, it was one of the most advanced in the world. In 1984, Daryl Pace used the innovative new Easton AC Arrow to win the 1984 Olympic Games. All the medals were won with Easton Arrows, mostly with the X7 because ACs were not widely available at that point, but for the next games, Easton would face a challenge. Speaking of the 1984 Olympics, Jim Easton took on a lot of responsibility for those games, starting with the 1983 World Championships in Long Beach, which we mentioned earlier. This was the test event for the 84 Olympic competition. This also happened to be the archery organizing debut for Jim's son, Greg, who as a UCLA student helped run the motor pool for the games. Jim took on a triple role, archery commissioner, technology director, and mayor of the Olympic Village at UCLA. This meant 18-hour days, and the archery competition under his leadership was considered to be one of the best ever, smooth-running, And helped give the LA Games its title of best ever. Easton Aluminum was an official sponsor of the Games, and as a part of that, the company built three public archery ranges in Greater Los Angeles as a legacy, while Jim established the first of what would become two sports development foundations, the first one to maintain the ranges and build archery programs throughout Southern California. The Easton Sports Development Foundation One operates today to maintain the programs. In the early 80s, bowmaker and innovator Earl Hoyt Jr. sold off his company, which was nearly defunct at that point, to CML, a holding company. In 1983, Jim bought Hoyt Archery from CML and launched a new company, Hoyt Easton USA, and he brought Earl Hoyt Jr. on as a consultant. With Hoyt bows used to win the 1972, 76, 80, and 84 Olympic Games, revitalized Hoyt quickly became the leader in Olympic archery bows worldwide under Jim's leadership and with the daily management of Jim's vice president, Joe Johnston. Joe was a marketing and product genius who took over running the Hoyt Bow Company and built it into an amazing success. In 1985, Jim established a new division in San Diego, one meant specifically to research and develop and composites products and further develop AC arrows and other products. This resulted in aluminum carbon golf shafts, stabilizers, and improved A.C. Arrow products, including the Easton A.C.E. Shaft. American archer Jay Bars used this barrel-shaped arrow, technology hearkening back to Doug Easton's barreled wooden shafts of the 1930s, to win the 1988 Olympic Games. In fact, the story of the A.C.E. is one example of how Jim Easton was able to quickly and decisively respond to a competitive challenge. In 1987, a French company, Beeman, developed a protruded all-carbon arrow shaft that was used by a Korean archer to win the 1987 World Championship. The Beeman arrow was lighter and a little slimmer than the original Easton AC shafts used in the 1984 Olympic Games. Jim Easton decided to raise the stakes and put all the company's resources behind making a better arrow. The result was the ACE, a sophisticated barreled arrow shaft. This small diameter, at the time, high-performance arrow, immediately set new records and helped J-Bars win his Olympic title. A few years later, Beeman was nearly out of business and was bought by Easton and rescued from oblivion, resurrected as a Made in USA brand. A new 50,000-square-foot R&D facility for composites was built in San Diego in 1988. Two years later, this facility was creating the world's most advanced composite hockey sticks. NHL superstar Wayne Gretzky and a host of other top players refused to use less than an Easton stick, and in fact, most of those players bought the sticks themselves. In 1992, French archer Sebastian Flute won the Barcelona Olympic Games with ACE arrow shafts. In fact, ACEs were used by nearly every competitor at these games, which were kicked off with the iconic lighting of the Olympic cauldron with a flaming Easton arrow shaft shot by Spanish Paralympian Antonio Rebollo. In the months leading up to the opening ceremony for the Olympic Games, Easton built more than a thousand of these flaming arrows for testing. It's estimated that nearly half the world's population watched that cauldron lit with that Easton arrow, a point of pride for Jim Easton. In 1995, I was a member of the U.S. National Recurve Archery Team, and I went on to compete in the World Championships and the World Games. I started working on what became the X-10, following in the tradition of having avid users design the company's products. With the X-10, I built upon the technology of the ACE to create what is still the world's most winning target aero shaft. It's taken every Olympic title since it was introduced in 1996. Also, by 1996, AC aero production processes started to be moved to Salt Lake City. And by 1999, all of the AC aero construction processes completed the move to Salt Lake. In 1987, Greg Easton was 23 years old. Greg had spent his summer breaks working in the Easton factory in Van Nuys, learning the business from the ground up, at one point or another having worked every single job in the factory, from hammer swaging to heat treating to straightening to, well, probably pushing a broom. Now, freshly graduated from UCLA with a degree in economics, Greg was ready to get into the workforce full-time. Greg inherited a lot from his dad—looks, sharp mind, appetite for hard work, and the ability to multitask, among others but he was interested in new experiences and he wanted to leave the door open to someday join his father in business. So his first decision was to do something similar to what his father had done, which would be to join a different company. But unlike the situation between Jim and Doug, Jim was happy to have Greg follow his own path, a philosophy that served both men very well as things turned out. Greg started out working at Mizuno in Japan, Now, Perhaps that was not coincidentally one of Easton's customers because Easton made Mizuno's top-line baseball bats for Japan's hugely popular pro-baseball circuit. Working at Mizuno, Greg worked on products and marketing and picked up a great deal while there. He represented the company at the 1980 Olympic Games where baseball was an exhibition sport. Greg rejoined Easton in 1989, working in team sports as a product manager for the new ball glove line. He also spent a year managing the company's operations in Australia. By that point, Easton had a distribution center in Australia, where it also developed products for Commonwealth Nation markets, like cricket bats and field hockey sticks. Working to learn every element of the business, leveraging his extensive international experience, Greg became the product manager for bats for Easton Sports, and then group marketing manager for the Spring product line. In 1993, Greg took on a new challenge, managing the company's facility in the Netherlands, which was a distribution center for all of Easton's sporting goods, as general manager for Europe. After two years in the Netherlands, Greg returned to the United States to become president of Easton Sports, a position he held until late 1996. In November of 1996, Greg took on a new challenge, overseeing marketing at Hoyt Archery, now known as Hoyt USA. The company had seen an explosion of business with more Olympic success and the soaring popularity of their hunting bows. Greg moved to Utah for the new position, and after a year at Hoyt, he was ready for the next step, which would be more heavily into product technology. By 1996, Easton was at or near the top in every product category it sold, whether it be arrows, bows, bats, bicycle components, aerospace tubing, hockey sticks, you name it. There were certainly challenges from carbon aeromakers, but again, since Easton had worked to succeed its own product, it had a healthy portfolio of technologies to combat most any challenge. But there were indeed challenges. As Greg puts it, right after I was named president, the competition from a new material really began to heat up. That new material was wrap process all carbon. Now, Easton had developed its own superior all-carbon shaft before, but chosen not to market it. Greg knew it wouldn't be enough to simply have a better product. He knew Easton would have to change the way it sold its products to meet this challenge. Under Greg's leadership, the company launched a new marketing and distribution model that had never before been used in the company history. Until this point, Easton had only sold its products through exclusive distributors. Now, Easton was going to sell arrows direct to dealers as well. Greg began a strong cycle of innovation, introducing the full metal jacket arrow technology, patenting small diameter arrows under the Axis name, and then creating more innovation with additional series of arrows. Greg also began an expansion of the Easton Mountain Products line with the introduction of the Easton Snowshoe, which had a number of innovations. See, originally, Easton had been an OEM manufacturer of snowshoe frames for certain companies. When Easton made its own snowshoe, it took what it had learned and turned it into an even better product. Later, after the uh, team used its ski pole experience, they created a complete line of Easton trekking poles. Another new addition was that of an Easton tent line. See, for more than 25 years, Easton had made the best tent pole systems for tents for all the major manufacturers. But as those competitors looked for ways to save money, the made-in-USA poles were replaced with inferior, cheaper, Asian-made poles. Greg took that lesson of innovation into the tent business and started a line of Easton tents that featured new technologies and also ushered in the era of more technology in the pole systems as well. Again, Easton used innovation and technology to get into a new market after establishing itself as a valued supplier – and today it is the main military supplier for tents used by the U.S. Marine Corps. Back in 1995, Jim Easton had donated the world's largest archery range to the Olympic Training Center in San Diego. Now he wanted to do more. He had already revolutionized Olympic archery, introducing the exciting head-to-head format that has thrilled audiences worldwide on various archery circuits and in the Olympic Games another initiative that helped foster a media-friendly experience at major archery events and helped result in the explosive popularity that archery enjoys in popular culture today. In 1995, Jim turned 60 and was chairman of one of the most capable sporting goods manufacturers in the world. In 1994, he'd been inducted by the International Olympic Committee as a member, a step helping secure the future of archery on the Olympic calendar, and he served 16 years as president of FITA, which is now World Archery, the World Archery Governing Body. But along the way, there had been some setbacks. Easton raised the performance stakes for bats in the 1990s with an entirely new technology, titanium softball bats called the Typhoon, that promised to again raise the bar on human limits and help make softball an even higher performance sport. Nothing could compete with Jim's typhoon, and because Easton had created its own new secret techniques to work the highly temperamental material, it would be a long time before anyone else could catch up. But the industry association, controlled by powerful interests with competing products, outlawed the titanium bat, and in fact wrote new rules that killed all innovation in bats, which was the very heart of Easton's competitive edge. Jim and Greg saw the writing on the wall for further innovation in baseball and softball bats. So, they began a plan to develop a divestiture of the team sports portion of the business and keep the family roots businesses of bows and arrows, so the family could endow a larger than ever foundation to support the development of all the sports that had made Easton a success and a household name worldwide. By 1997, Greg had moved into a technology position at Easton Technical Products, as Vice President of Special Projects and Director of Carbon Products. There, he saw oversaw development of the company's highly automated, made in usa carbon arrow processes. Jim Easton was now Chairman of Jazz D. Easton Incorporated, so it was time for Greg to take the center seat of the family's most prized asset, the archery division. After a year and a half as Director of Manufacturing, a period where he experienced hands-on every single process at Easton, Jim and Greg decided that Greg would take the position of president of Easton Technical Products. And in 2006, Jim finally sold the team sports division, known as Easton Sports, to Bell Sports and formed a new company, Easton Bell Sports. This was a team sports powerhouse, taking over bats and gloves and other team sports Easton items, adding to it Bell and Rydell helmets, bicycle products, and more. Jim was chairman of the new company, which was completely separate from the family's archery holdings of Hoyt and Easton Technical Products. Jim used the proceeds from the merger to form a second Easton Foundation, Easton Foundation Two, which has built archery and other sports facilities across the nation and every year teaches thousands of people the sport of archery. As we mentioned earlier, Greg Easton established Easton Mountain Products in 2004, a line of advanced mountaineering and trekking gear which set a standard for high performance, used in Everest expeditions and around the world. But Greg also used the company's core competencies to make this new line of products superior to the competition. Today, Greg and his wife Carol live in Park City, Utah. They're the parents of a boy and a girl. Greg has become president of the JASD Easton Corporation, overseeing all of the Easton companies, including Easton Technical Products and Hoyt Archery. Greg also takes an extremely active role in the various Easton Sports Development Foundation projects. He organized a hugely successful Youth World Archery Championship in 2009, and then three Archery World Cups in uh, Utah from 2010 through 2012 that were best rated by participating athletes. Greg holds a position on the USA Archery Association board, and in 2013, he was elected to the executive board of the World Archery Federation following in his father's footsteps. Among the foundation projects being overseen by Greg and the foundation, multi-million dollar archery facilities in California, Florida, and Utah. Today, Jim Easton is semi-retired and living in Los Angeles, while still serving as an honorary member of the International Olympic Committee. Jim's wife, Phyllis, an accomplished publisher and graphics design consultant, has a role in documenting the history of the sport, helped produce a book on the history of Olympic archery, and had involvement in the production of several official Olympic films. Jim counted his successful effort to have the Olympic archery competition of 2004 take place in the ancient Olympic Stadium of Athens as one of his proudest accomplishments as president of world archery, and he remains proud that Easton Arrows have won every Olympic title since 1972. Bob Easton continues working as a world-renowned architect, author, and consultant. He lives in central coastal California. Since its beginnings in 1922, Easton has focused on offering innovative, high-quality products that enhance the end-user's experience. After all, this is the company that revolutionized the sport by introducing straight, consistent aluminum arrows in the 1940s to make archery more fun and accessible to more people. It's a legacy of genuine, real-world benefits that has shaped the company through three generations of the family. Founder Doug Easton, Doug's son Jim, Doug's grandson Greg, and it guides the Easton team as they move forward today into its 100th year. We think Doug would be pretty proud. I'm George Techmanchev. I hope you've enjoyed this uh, special on the Easton company history for the last century. Our regular podcast will return next time.